Well, would you please turn to your Bibles to the book that's up on the screen, the book of 1 John. I'm not talking about the Gospel of John. I'm talking 1 John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, in the backhand side of your, your New Testament. Every church has like church culture things that aren't moral or immoral, it's just the way that they do them, like that church that I mentioned to you that that had everybody stand that was new in the, in the worship service and announced themselves. That's just a part of their church culture. It's not moral or immoral. Church culture isn't something that is sinful or not sinful. It's not like where if other churches don't do it the way that Grace Community Church does it, that they're heretics and they're all going to hell. It's just a part of church culture. And so we have that as well. And one of the parts of our church culture is each summer we study through uh, verse by verse through a passage of Scripture. And so this summer, we are studying through the New Testament book of 1 John. And so today, we are going to get to know this book that we're going to be studying all summer long. So I'm going to start with the hard-hitting questions first. Who wrote the book of 1 John? <laughs> no one wants to answer that because you think like the answer is too easy. No, no, no. The answer is John. Yes. Not first, it's not like first is his na first name and then John is his last name. It's John. And John was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just an, you think just an apostle. He wasn't just one of the 12. He was in the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He was in the, he was in the intimate, close circle of Jesus Christ, Peter, James, and John. John was one of them. He was a close associate of Jesus. He witnessed, experienced, participated in, felt, and heard the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, John wrote several books in the Bible. So you've turned to 1 John. He wrote 2 John, and he wrote 3 John. But he's not the most famous for these books. He's more famous for the Gospel of John. There we know we have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and we have the Gospel of John, same John. But he is probably the most famous for writing the book of Revelation. He's written a lot of books, and in those books, he reveals things about himself. Like in the Gospel of John, he, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It tells us there in the book of John that he was the one that put his head on Jesus' chest in that very first upper room supper. So we learn a lot about John through the letters that he writes. John has a brother, and he and his brother were called to be disciples or apostles of Jesus Christ. Here's the way that Mark puts that calling of Jesus and his brother uh, to be apostles. In Mark 3, it says that Jesus appointed the twelve, Simon Peter, you're familiar with Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and to them Jesus gave the names the sons of thunder. And so John has a brother. What's John's brother's name? James. Now, this is not the James that wrote the New Testament book of James. That's another James. That's Jesus' brother, James. James was a popular name in New Testament times. And so they were both the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus gives the brothers a WWF kind of name. Now entering the ring, the sons of thunder. It's an awesome name. I wish I could have something studly like that. James, he died of martyrdom in Acts chapter 12, but John did not. And the tone of 1 John gives the impression that John is older than the people that he's communicating with because he uses the phrase throughout the book, something about children, like addressing them as children. He'll say something like, my little children or you children. And for us, if someone called us a little child, we'd be offended. We'd feel like they were putting us down. But that was not the case in this New Testament book. It was a term of familiarity, a term of closeness, a term of love, a term of intimacy. He was close with the people that he was writing to. Now, this book, little small book, though it might be small in the back, it's not, um, it, it's not that it has no controversy in it. People are always asking questions about various books of the Bible. And one of the controversies that surround this book is when it was written, 
one of the hotly contested items about this book is when it was written. And scholars that gonna, are between a 10-year span, between 90 A.D. and 100 A.D., so it's later in the first century. And to everybody, who, all the scholars who argue, was it 90 A.D. and 100 A.D., I say, who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The, the point is, is let's learn from it and let's apply it. Understanding what it says and applying what it says, that's the most important. So if you're team 90 A.D., I say, good, you're right. And if you're team 100 A.D., I say, good, you're right. But one of the bigger uh, controversies about this book is the curiosity of, is the book of 1 John a letter or not? Is it a letter? And some people say, of course this is not a letter. And anybody who thinks that this is a letter is a banana short of a fruit basket kind of person. This cannot be a letter. And the reason that people would say that this is not a letter is because it doesn't have any of the common things of a letter. Like it does not have a salutation. Look at the first verse of 1 John. The very first verse, it says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He, there's, no, there's like no introduction. Like, hey, I'm, I'm this person, I'm an elder, and I'm writing to this person. But that's what happens in the book of 2 John. Turn your Bible just a couple pages over to 2 John 1. And there's a... Find salutation in 2 John 1. In 2 John verse 1, it says, The elder to the church, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also those who know him. Now that's a salutation. Look at 3 John, just right over to the right of that. 3 John. Here's a salutation. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. That's a salutation. And people say, well, there's no salutation in 1 John, and so it can't be a letter. There's also no conclusion. Most of Paul's letters and John's letters conclude with some sort of like, I'm greeting you, or I, I'm greeting you th with these people, or would you greet these other people for me? Look at the end of first, uh, 2 John. Look at the end of 2 John, so verse 13 of 2 John. There's a great conclusion, a great greeting at the end. It says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. Yeah, that's the way you close a letter in the New Testament right there. Look at the end of 3 John, 3 John verse 15. It says, peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends by my name. Now that's a good conclusion. Those are great letters. Look at the way that 1 John is concluded in chapter 5 verse 21. Guard yourselves from idols. <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's no conclusion. And so people would say this is not a letter because of those reasons. Now, of course, others will say, obviously, this is a letter. And I'm willing to fight anybody who says this isn't a letter. And the reason that others would say that this is a letter is because it's intimate. The, the author knows the recipients, and the recipients know the author. And it's speaking to a particular group of people who are dealing with the specific issue. It's not addressing dispersed peoples that are all, all around somewhere with various problems and issues. It's dealing with a specific group of people who are dealing with specific issues. And to both of those groups, I say, relax. You're both wrong. It's neither one of those things. It's not, it's, it's not a letter, and it's not not a letter. Yes, it's true that this is intimate. It is loving. The author does know the one that he is speaking to, and the ones that are receiving this, they know the one who they are being spoken to. And it's true that there is no salutation, and there's a reason that there's no salutation. There can be a time when somebody is communicating with a group of people, and they don't need a salutation because he's right there with them. And so why would you need to greet somebody when you're right there with them? And, and what could be a time? What would you call it if someone was speaking to another group of people and they both know each other and so no greeting is necessary because they're right there together in the same room? What might you call that? I don't know, a sermon? And so what we see here 
in 1 John is exactly what's happening here today with us. And so when I get up today, I didn't have to say, hello, my name is Nathan Zickert. I am the son of Todd and Joyce Zickert. I am the husband of Tanya Zickert. I am the father of Caleb and Noel Zickert. And I was saved when I was a child, and I was called to be an elder 13 years. I didn't have to do all of that because we know each other, because we have a connection. We have an intimacy together. And so when we are looking at the book of 1 John, this is more of a sermon than it is of a letter written to someone else. He's there with them. He's there. So was this sermon preached verbally? I don't know. We don't know that. I would suspect so. Was it written down? Obviously. We're reading it. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have website archives where you could just later on go back and and listen to that sermon again. As a matter of fact, most sermons, most famous sermons, are written down even today in modernity. So this is obviously a sermon that was written down by John, who loved this group of people, and he was there with them, and now we have it written that we can study the sermon as well. And so church tradition tells us that this was written in the city of Ephesus. Now, you're familiar with Ephesus because there's another book in the Bible that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, but the church history places this written in Ephesus. And there's some things about Ephesus that you need to know that will help us understand the book of 1 John. And what's interesting about these things about Ephesus is that the exact same things are happening in Riverside today in 2023. Here are four things that you need to know about the environment in which this sermon is being preached and then written to the people in Ephesus. Okay? The first thing was this, is that they were familiar with Christianity. The people who were receiving this message were familiar with Christianity. These are, the think of the time, 90 to 100 AD. Okay? So you think of that time. These are the people who are the kids and grandkids of the people who got saved back in Acts. And so the people who got saved all the way in Acts, I mean, back then, Christianity was sparkly, it was shiny, it was exciting, but now things have become dull. The shine has worn off of this whole Christianity thing just because of time. And so now, the kids and the grandkids of these people who are on fire for Jesus Christ, their faith, their love for Christianity is at a low tide. Not a high one. But they were very familiar with Christianity because they grew up in Christian homes. They knew Christianity. That's very common. Kids who grow up in Christian homes, at some point in time, their faith will often reach a low tide because at some point they need to come to their own convicted conclusions regarding Jesus and Christianity for themselves. So they were very familiar with Christianity. The second thing is that these kids of these first believers... They didn't want to be different because that's what Christianity does. The the high standards of Christianity, wherever, whether it's in Ephesus or in Riverside, causes a person to be different than the rest of the culture. You know, you've heard the, the phrase that Christians are sometimes called saints. And that just means that they are set apart for God's use. That's what a saint means, set apart for God's use. And 60 years later... 70 years later after Acts, these now Christians that grew up in Christian homes, they aren't so sure that they want to be different than the rest of the culture. They're like, they're assembly line Christians. They're like plastic Christians. Yes, they're believers, but they don't have the same desire that their parents had or their grandparents had to be different than the rest of the culture. They, they wanted to be like the rest of the culture. So these are Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. He's not sharing the gospel here. But some of these now Christians, 70 years later, they don't have a fellowship with Jesus Christ like their parents or grandparents did. And when you don't have a fellowship with Jesus Christ, inevitably what will happen is is that your life is going to look like the rest of the world. And so 
that's exactly what's happening with these kids and grandkids of the, of the parents and grandparents who first put their faith and trust in Christ way back in, in Acts. So they were familiar with Christianity. They just weren't interested in being set apart for God's use and the uniqueness of what a Christian really was, which set them up for a problem. The enemy of this group of Christians is not what you think it might be. The, the enemy is inside the church, not outside the church. What I mean by that is that the enemy in the New Testament was almost always persecution. We talk about persecution all the time in the New Testament, where it was the Romans, the, the godless Romans that would oppress the church, or it was the Jews the religious Jews would oppress Christians. As a matter of fact, that's who Paul was. Paul was a, a fervent Jew who was killing and persecuting and imprisoning Christians because of their faith, because the Jews considered Christianity a heresy against true religion. And so the enemy has always been on the outside in the New Testament. But now here we are, we're a little bit later now, we're in 90 A.D., we're in 100 A.D., we're at the end of the first century, and this book doesn't mention any of that stuff. That, that's gone. But there is still an enemy, and the enemy is now on the inside as opposed to pressuring them from the outside. And the enemy on the inside are the false teachers. And the false teachers, they didn't want to get rid of Christianity like the Jews did. They didn't want to get rid of Christianity like the Romans did. What the false teachers wanted to do is they wanted to modify Christianity. They wanted to make it better. They wanted to improve Christianity. They wanted to make Christianity palatable for the culture. Does that sound familiar with some churches that are in Riverside today? And so that was their goal, was to make Christianity better, like Christianity 2.0. I mean, you, ha you have something okay, but we can make it better for the culture. And that fit great with the group of kids, well, now adults, but who were kids, who group of people who really weren't interested in being unique. They wanted to be like the rest of the culture. And so Gnosticism was the way to improve it. Gnosticism was the way to improve Christianity. Gnosticism just means knowledge, Gnosticism is a dualism uh, religion, dualism, two sides, dual, you know, two sides. And in Gnosticism, there is the flesh and there is the spirit. The, the, the flesh, like hu humanity, you know, human, the body, the flesh, uh, things, and then the spiritual, the metaphysical things, dualism. And in Gnosticism, anything that was human, anything that was flesh was evil. And anything that is metaphysical, anything that is spiritual, anything that's spirit is glorious. So you have the, the flesh that's wicked and evil, and you have the, the, the spiritual or the spirit of things, and that is the righteous and the holy thing. And so this is the way that Gnosticism operated. And so, therefore, you take that Gnosticism, which is the cultural-like thing, and you bring it into the church, and the Gnostics, the false teachers in the church, they wanted to preserve Jesus' um, reputation with Gnosticism. You have to preserve who Jesus is. After all, if humanity is evil, then there's no way that Jesus could be a human. That was the message, that if Jesus was God, he couldn't be a human because everything human is evil. And if Jesus was a human, then he couldn't be God. That's the dualism. That's Gnosticism. And so, and so they bring Gnosticism in the church, and they begin to say that Jesus was never a human in an effort to protect who Jesus is. Upgrading Christianity, 2.0 kind of Christianity. And so some Gnostics believed that Jesus' body wasn't ever a real body, that it was more it's like a phantom body, that you couldn't ever have really touched it. 
other Gnostics believed that it was a real human body that God's spirit came and entered into that body, so a separate spirit entering the body at his baptism, but that spirit left his body before he was killed on the cross, effectively making that body like like a zombie, that the spirit never actually was the body was never Jesus or God. It was just the, the spirit was inhabiting uh, muscle and bone. And so the Gnostics brought this into the church, trying to elevate Christianity and protect who Jesus was. Of course, the Gnostics, they claimed to have a higher knowledge, a higher truth that trumped any other truth. And so they brought that truth into the church, which they said trumped even the things written down in Scripture by previous prophets. We still see that today in Christian cults today, that they have even a higher knowledge than the Bible that exists today. And so these false teachers, they're infiltrating the church. They're infiltrating Christianity. And... John needs to address this. This is the uh, issue that is pumping in the church. This is the issue that could be the thing that tears apart these Christians. Not the persecution from the outside, but the Gnosticism on the inside. And so the theme of 1 John is that, that Christians are to have fellowship with God, that Christians are to have fellowship with Jesus, and Christians are to have fellowship with each other, but not with the world. That's the theme. The Christians are to have fellowship with God, with Jesus, and with other Christians, but not fellowship with the world. That's the theme of what we're going to be studying today. Now, of course, this was a sermon that was delivered. And as a sermon, um, John didn't have to he didn't have to write in like short little bursts. You know, he didn't have, this wasn't a, a text where he was limited to a number of characters because you don't read those long ones. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a tweet where you're limited to the number of characters. Um, he, th- this wasn't an email, although he probably would have written emails if he could have. This was something that was preached and written down so that then others then could pass it on and read it as well. And so we're going to learn 1 John first in the way that they heard 1 John, all in one shot. And then over the next weeks of summertime, we're going to study what then was read. Because that's the way it would happen in any church. If this ended up in another church somewhere, the church leader would stand up and he'd read the entire thing. He wouldn't read just two verses and say, whew, that's a lot. He'd read the entire thing, and then they'd say, whoa, that's a lot. Let's go back and study it. And so we're going to do the same thing this summer. First, we're going to read the entire thing today out loud. It takes about 17 minutes. I've clocked myself. It takes about 17 minutes. I get it in our culture, anything over about three and a half minutes, we lose attention spans. So whatever it takes for you to pay attention, great. If you want to follow along with me as I read this, great. If you just want to sit back and listen uh, to it being read, that's great too, because that's how it was initially delivered. And then for the rest of the summer, we're going to go back and study this, okay? So let's begin reading 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am writing not I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have known from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother, he is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who have been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have become you have because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were all, they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things that I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone, you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as is the anointing as the anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know 
that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we would love one another, not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has entered etern- has, has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him, and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. 
By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who is not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son, that the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has a son has the life and he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that there should be a request made for this. All unrighteousness is a sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that there is, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. And in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Whoa. Now you can say you read an entire book of the Bible. Okay, now if you're visiting us for the very first time, you're never coming back. Don't worry, we won't do that again. Uh, But... We do that to launch this so that we can get a little bit of a landscape of where we're going. Now, you might have questions about what we read, like that whole thing about uh, a sin that doesn't lead to death, and then that one about that it does lead to death. If you're curious about that, come back. We're going to study that. Maybe you you heard a lot in here, a phrase like this, we know that the one who is born of God does not sin. You might be thinking, but I know that Christians sin. What about that part? Okay, well, come back and we're going to study all these things during the the summer here. Remember, the theme of 1 John is that Christians are to have fellowship with God the Father. They're to have fellowship with Jesus. Christians are to have fellowship with each other, but not with the world. That's the theme. And he starts at the very beginning with who Jesus is. Go back to first, verse 1 of 1 John. Go back to verse 1 of 1 John 1. 
And he starts as he's writing to Christians. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. This isn't like a gospel message per se, because he's already writing to Christians. But he starts with who Jesus is. That's exactly where he starts his gospel, by the way. He starts his gospel with who Jesus is. The other writers of the other gospels are about Jesus' lineage and his genealogy and his background. John, he forgets all that. He goes exactly to who Jesus is. And he does that here in this in this book as well. Because after all, if we're supposed to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, how can we have fellowship with someone that we don't know? Like if, if you had a friend and, his, he w- and, and they were Australian, an Australian friend, but you didn't know they were Australian, how in the world could you call him your bestie, you know? And so if, if you want to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, if you want to call him his best friend, John's perspective is, well, you might as well know who he is. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. And really in these first two verses, we're only getting through two verses today, but in this, in this first two verses, we learn three things about Jesus that poke back at the Gnosticism and Gnostics that were, um, were existing in the church at this time. So let's look at 1 John 1, the just very first portion of the sentence. What was from the beginning... What was from the beginning, of course, this is referring to Jesus Christ, and this phrase is referring to Jesus' eternity. Jesus has always existed and is also existing today. What was from the beginning, that's a, it's, a, it's a Greek phrase that just means that what was happening is still continuing. What, what happened before is still happening now. Like when I say, I was married 26 years ago. The insinuation, the implication is, is that 26 years ago I was married, but that marriage is still continuing on today. And anyone who's ever been married longer than two months knows <laughs> that it takes perseverance, it takes sacrifice, it takes hard work to get through from the beginning until now. And so that's referring to Jesus Christ and his eternity. He has always existed. He's existed in eternity past. Even the Gospel of John tells us that he was a part of creation, creating the world, the universe, uh, everything that we know of. And so if he was there at creation, that means he was there even before all of that. But let's even get more into, into this. Not only was he eternal all the way in the past, let's keep reading here in uh, verse 1. It says, and we have heard... And what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and we have looked and touched with our hands. Remember, he was one of the foremost apostles. He lived with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus. He touched Jesus. And so he's saying, yes, he was eternal in the past, but we have like literally touched him. He's thinking back to what Jesus describes in Luke 24. Have it here on the screen. And he said to his apostles, including John, by the way, why are you troubled? And why do you, you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. He's remembering all the way back to that point where Jesus says, hey, look at me and touch me. You've spent your entire life with me. Look, I am not only I was I from the beginning, and I'm not only spirit, I am, I am here with you right now. Remember, the Gnostics wanted to say that Jesus wasn't a human body, that he wasn't human, that he was only spirit. And John, in this very first verse of this book, is going right to the Gnosticism that is spinning around in the church and saying, no, 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 look, Jesus was a human body. I touched it. I mean, this is, this is 90 years later. Jesus has already died. He's already ascended up into heaven. And so everybody who's alive here hadn't seen Jesus or touched him like John had. And he's saying, I've seen it. We know that he was a real human body. And what these Gnostics are saying is absolutely not true. So he was from the beginning, and he is still continuing until now, concerning at the very end, concerning the word of life. This is referring not only to Jesus Christ, but the proclamation of his gospel, the word of life. So the first thing that we get from the, the first verse is Jesus' eternity all the way from the beginning until now. But then we get in verse 2, 
we get more about who Jesus is. Two more things about Jesus. It says, and the life which was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He was with the Father. That is a key point. He is eternal from before until now, but He was with the Father. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that John assumed that Jesus was God. Not only was He human, but He's God. And so this phrase here that that He uh, was with the Father is speaking to Jesus' Uh, deity. He was with God the Father before the creation of the world. He was with God during the creation of the world. He was with God after the creation of the world. And if you need any more, I don't think to you, I don't think you need additional proof, but I think those people in the, the Gnostic churches needed additional proof about Jesus being deity while he had been a body. In Colossians 2 verse 9, I have it on here on the screen, it says this, For in him, or for in Jesus, all the fullness of deity, or of God, dwells in bodily form. That verse completely contradicts this idea of dualism, that that either you are human or you are metaphysical. You are either physical or you are spirit. And it says here that Jesus was God and and he was in bodily form. So, we have Jesus' eternity from beginning until now. We have His deity that he is, he is God all of that time. And then we get back to the beginning of verse 2, which gets to the last thing about Jesus. And it says, and the life was manifested. That word manifested means just became real. So, that, that, that eternal God then was made real in human bodily form. It was manifested. It became a physical thing. And obviously, he's, this first verse, he's poking right at the Gnostics. <laughs> he's poking exactly at the thing that they had said that Jesus was. Jesus was not a phantom where he was only a spirit, but the body really wasn't a body. No, no, he was manifested. He was in bodily form. And he wasn't just, a, he wasn't a zombie where the spirit came and, and um, kind of like held up a little fortress inside of uh, flesh and bones. No, no. He was God, eternal God, in a complete human body. He was 100% God and 100% human all at the same time. Now, if this is, this is highly controversial. Now, to you, it's not. But this was highly controversial in, in this era. Paul even addresses this a little bit in uh, Philippians 2. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what Gnosticism would do? If, if Jesus was never a body... How could he die? I mean, they were bringing a something that sounded so good. It sounded like it, like elevated Christianity to like a, a place where you know the rest of the world might accept it. But at the same time, they're removing the potential of his death, which removes the complete salvation message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gnosticism was a heresy, and he had to go right at it very, very quickly. And the fact that Jesus was 100% body, I don't need to convince you of this. But every single time you read the Bible, there are hints and reminders that Jesus was human, 100% human. You read that Jesus was born as a baby in Luke. Yeah, because he's a human. You read that he grew up like a normal children in Luke. Yeah, because he was a human. You've read that he experienced hunger and thirst. Why? Because he was a human. He wasn't only metaphysical. He wasn't just a spirit. He was hungry and he was thirsty. He expressed emotions like grief and anger because he was a human. He was attempted to do wrong because he was a human. He experienced suffering because he was a human. He physically bled and died because he was a human. 
And yet, it says in the Bible, in Hebrews, it says this about his humanity. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. He's also God. (laughs) He is 100% human. He is everything human that human is. But at the same time, he is eternal deity and he is God. And that's how he could not sin. And it is in this way only that Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. And if Gnosticism changed the mind of Christians that Jesus was not a body, there goes the death of Jesus, gone. And then there goes our salvation. And so then John circles back to kind of close the loop in the middle of verse 2. It says, And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life. That's why John could proclaim eternal life, because Jesus was a human body, and he was complete deity. He was both of those things. Jesus was God. He became human, still being God, and then he ascended back up into heaven in his human body, by the way, eternal glorified human body, still being God today. And that's who Jesus Christ is. And that's why John has such a passion about this issue of Gnosticism and what it does in the church. And so the theme in all this is that Christians are to have fellowship with God the Father. And they are to have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And Christians must have fellowship with other Christians, but not with the world. Because the world thinks differently than all of this. That's the message. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've heard the gospel today, that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. And that's a wonderful message. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We're all separated from God. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus Christ. Our sin has fallen upon Jesus Christ, and that's when he died on the cross as a human. He paid the price that you owe. And so if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today's the day. Today is where you can put your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. You're just going to talk to God. You're not going to talk to me. You're going to talk to God. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? Just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. In just a minute, let's, let's them next to you talk to God for a minute. If you need this eternal life that Jesus offers, you talk to him. You pray. And you might say something like this. You would say, dear God, I know that I've sinned, and I know that I need a Savior. And I realize that Jesus is the only one that can save me. He was the perfect sacrifice. And I believe that he died on the cross for my sin, and I believe that he rose from the grave. And I put my personal faith, my belief, my trust in this Jesus Christ. Well, God, we thank you for what your Bible tells us today. We thank you for your provision in your son that we could have the hope of eternal life in in that. And that's why we worship you today is because of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.